Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, don't know how I can follow anything that's come before me at this point. Uh, all I can probably do is hit a foul ball and mess up the whole morning. But in any event, uh, thanks, guys, for your testimonies and for those who are graduating. I also want to extend uh, a special thank you to all of you that came uh, Thursday night for our prayer time. Uh, that was especially meaningful for me. Um, I, you know, you, you never know when it comes to prayer or some of these meetings whether you're going to get three people or you're going to get 30, and we had a huge number of people come, and I personally found it very meaningful as we really tried to, in a sense, re-engage God and help us to expand our vision into a hurting world, and uh, we're, we'll, we'll follow that up with doing that again either through the summer or certainly in the fall. Uh, just some, the Lord's really stirring a lot of people's hearts, and I'm super encouraged by all of it, and uh, it's like this morning, I've given the privilege for some of our elders to baptize people, and it's kind of like, the more you give away, the better it gets around here. So it's uh, uh, really pretty cool to just see all these uh, people sharing their gifts and doing ministry and really being touched by God's presence. So uh, before we step into the scriptures, I'm gonna invite you to bow with me and let's pray before we jump in. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing to be in your presence. Uh, Father, we know that you are always here and that really the, the, the trick for us is that we have our spiritual alignment and our sensitivities uh, aligned with you in such a way that we just have a very real sense of you being here already. Um, Father, we know that you are the one that uh, we desire to change our life, that it's not just our circumstances, but we want you to change us so that we become a better reflection of Jesus. And yet, by our own admission, that's sometimes the hardest thing because we like the way we are, we like to be in control, we shudder at times about the idea of changing things in our own life because we live in a world that is completely changing all the time and it just, it's very unsettling. And so we wanna come back and step back into the scriptures and take a really close look at Jesus as he touched lives and to draw great comfort from what not only he has done in our lives, but what he continues to do in lives of people, whether we read it in the scriptures or whether we're talking about our current reality where we live. Father, if there's anything that we wanna see, it's the, the presence and the power of Jesus to change not only our lives, but others. And we've had the privilege to hear about that this morning. And we just ask that you would keep our hearts open to the reality of your presence and how you're working around us that we might be able to see and experience the power of Jesus in real ways. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen. I uh, was reading an old story that Tony Compolo, who is uh, kind of ancient of days, but uh, told one time about uh, kind of a fun little story about churches and how they operate, and he said, he called it this, every Sunday the ducks in a certain town waddled out of their houses and went down Main Street to their church. They waddled into the sanctuary, which we don't use here, but that's okay, it's good for the story, and they squat in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in and takes its place, and then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. He reads to them, ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly, with wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can find you, no fences can hold you. You have wings, God has given you wings, and you can fly like eagles. And all the ducks said, Amen, and they all waddled home. 
Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you caught up to that. That was good. I was afraid that wasn't going to land there for a minute, but anyway. But you know, one of the things that I think is more discouraging to Christians is that we come and hear messages that we love and we hear testimonies that we love and, and we say amens to great truth in the scriptures and then we often, instead of living out the freedom and the power of what God has called us to, we waddle home and kind of do the things that normally we do. And the danger with that, and I've seen it happen, is that you'll get people that at times have grown up in Christian homes or been exposed to it and been part of a church family, and they grow up in this for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden they start becoming very disillusioned with it because it's, it seems like a big social group. I, I, it's no different to them all of a sudden than belonging to a club or a, or a sports group because we have certain routines we go through, we have certain customs and practices and routines and habits and we get together in smaller groups and classes but at some point they begin to say you know I'm amening all this great truth but I don't feel the power of God changing me so that I can fly. I kind of waddle from this group to my job and I waddle from my job to the neighborhood and I waddle from this activity to that activity and I thought God was supposed to give me wings. I, I thought I was supposed to fly in the freedom and the power of what Christ has given me. But the danger is there's people that have conformed to the structure and to the ideas and, and to the priorities and the belief systems often that Christianity espouse, but they come to a point where they go, I'm not sure and I'm, I'm experiencing the power of God to help me fly. And so all of a sudden they go like, what difference is this making? What real difference is it making if I'm just kind of waddling through life and, and, and proclaiming and believing all this stuff but not really experiencing it in my own heart and soul? Isn't there a miracle for me somewhere in there that's going to radically change everything for me? Because isn't that what I need? My circumstances, Lord, are feel like a crisis and I need your help and nothing seems to happen. I want my spouse to change and I keep praying for it, but nothing seems to happen. I desperately agonize for my kids and I keep praying about it, but nothing seems to happen. And I want to live and amen the, the truth and the power of what God talks about, but I don't feel like I'm feeling it. And, it. and it starts playing in our heads about what does the power of God really look like? What does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? What is it that we really can honestly expect from Jesus in terms of our particular life and where we're going? And, and so as we step into Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, I believe that we're going to see the uniqueness of Jesus in a way because he alone is the one that touches people with the power of God. I think often we fall into the trap that because we're Christians, and this is a whole other discussion and because the scriptures tell us we will do greater things than what Jesus did, then we should be replicating everything that Jesus has done. In fact, we ought to be doing more spectacular things through us than what God did through Jesus. But then that creates a problem. I've grown up my whole life and I haven't experienced that and I've been faithful to go to these Bible studies and I haven't experienced that and I seem to be struggling with this and I haven't experienced the miracle to alleviate that. And so as we step into this particular text, we're reminded of the power of God and the uniqueness of his son, but it 
creates this tension in my own life. Am I really experiencing that power in my own life? So we begin in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29, where it says this, And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James, or with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him, or serve them. That evening at sundown they brought all, uh, to all, or, pardon me, brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. There's something when we read that that we go, man, wouldn't it be so cool to see those things happen now? Depending on how you talk to, the people are going to go, what are you talking about? We, where we live, wherever the ha- we see this stuff happening. And then all of a sudden we start saying, well, wait a minute, are we second-rate Christians and we really don't have the faith because we hear of some people over in this part of the world who are experiencing some of this and we're not doing it. There, and the real danger becomes certain Christians will hold up certain experiences as the spiritual standard that they measure other Christians. And, and then we get into this sort of spiritual conflict about who's really spiritual and who's not. If there's anything that I think this text tells, tells us is that the uniqueness isn't so much you and I, the uniqueness is Jesus. Because he alone is the one who has the power of God to totally transform people's lives. What we'll discover is that he has the privilege to use us, but it often looks very different than what we want because we need it to sort of bolster our own insecurities. I remember uh, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, I thought, God, how could it not glorify you if I pray and go and put my hands on a person they got healed? Wouldn't you get glorified? And God usually tapped me on the shoulder and said, yeah, it would, except for your ego would go right off the charts. <laughs> and I suspect that's the same problem with many people is that the reason why maybe God doesn't do certain things is because he knows us better than we know ourselves. That we have this insatiable need to, of self-worth and significance built on what we can accomplish and do for God rather than what God can do through us. This text, as simple as it is, is, helps remind us of the reality of who Christ is and his uniqueness even in terms of our own life journey. And so our struggles as we think about it is how do we step into this kind of a text and begin to understand the uniqueness? And so I want you to understand, first of all, the uniqueness of Christ's presence. There's two related stories here, and he was present first in a public scene. We've already read that last week where he was in the synagogue, which was a public forum, a place of, where community and teaching was operated for the Jews. And in that context, there was a man who happened to be there with an unclean spirit. And as you remember the story, Jesus commands the spirit to come out of him and he heals him. And, and it's because of his teaching and the power that he exerted and demonstrated in healing that particular man People just went out blabbing about Jesus everywhere. His fame spread everywhere. But I also want you to notice that as far as the text is concerned, he's the only person that experienced the power of God in that unique way. They didn't try to formulate it and create it into a thing so everybody in there got to experience the same thing because they all had different needs. 
And so he's in this public arena where Jesus operates in a very particular way, and as he, he moves from that scenario, he then moves into what I would call into the private quarters of Simon and his family. And one of the things I'm immediately struck by is that Jesus was not afraid of the crowds and being in the public arena, and part of the reason for that is that he wasn't hiding anything. His integrity is off the charts. His sense of righteousness and clarity and honesty and genuineness and authenticity is absolutely front and center. But when he goes into someone's private home, it doesn't change. He still has the same sense of credibility when, he, when he's in behind private doors and he's with a few select friends his integrity doesn't change us from what's out in the public arena. And I, I think it's important because you know the danger, especially in our culture, that a public persona is almost more important than private character. We live in a world right now where everything is about public perceptions. I mean, that's our social media. It can be a fantastic tool, but people use it because they're selling their own personal brand. They're talking about their own personal profiles. And, what, and this sort of becomes the reality. And people look at things that people put out there and they go, wow, this, depending on what they're trying to sell, these people are amazing. And yet, you and I both know that the reality is, is that doesn't mean anything in terms of their private life. I mean, we've seen it with Christian leaders and big churches and organizations, and we've seen it in politics and every other area of life where people's public persona, this private, this, this public image that people keep portraying is often carefully sculptured it's meant to communicate certain things and it's got all the statistical analysis to communicate the right stuff to the right groups of people and all those kinds of things. But often, and in and of itself, that's the world we live in, so I'm not saying it's wrong in and of itself, but the danger is, is that when you get these people behind in private settings, they turn into something completely different. And you don't see that with Jesus. What Jesus is in the public is, is he's exactly the same thing in, in the private home. And it's something that needs to challenge us in our own life is that God isn't concerned about your public image as much as he is about Christ-like character. And it's amazing how when we talk about the power of God, we want him to work in all kinds of situations, to create opportunities, to change circumstances, to give us jobs, to do a lot of things that are external to us and deal with the difficult circumstances of life. But the hardest part we have is saying, God, would you go in here and do spiritual surgery to renovate my heart and life so I become more like Jesus? Because you and I both know the overwhelming temptation is that when we get together, it's like, how are you? I'm fine. Life is good. And yet the reality in many of our lives is we're telling people what we want them to know rather than exposing the struggles often that we experience in life. Jesus was in public ministry, but at this point, I don't think he knew that Simon's mother-in-law was sick. That doesn't mean they were hiding it. He just... That was a reality that was going on while they were out doing public ministry. And so and when they come into this particular situation, the first thing that I just want you to, to recognize is I believe that what Christ portrayed in public is the same person in private. 
The same individual that when he gets behind closed doors in someone's private quarters and house, that he's not a totally different individual. But it's not just the uniqueness of his presence and his character, but it's the uniqueness of his power. And when he goes into this home, it's, I find it fascinating to just look at this very short few verses about seeing what's going on there. Because he will be faced with a problem, and that's going to be Simon's mother-in-law. Now, I don't know how well you get along with your mother-in-law, or father-in-law, or whoever it happens to be. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes not so much. The fact that they were concerned about his mother-in-law and were willing to talk to Jesus about her is probably a good positive thing. But when, he, so that's the problem they need to, that, that Jesus is going to be faced with coming in here. Now you and I look at it and we're gonna go, well this is pretty trivial. Why is it even in the scriptures? This is kind of insignificant and irrelevant. I don't know, ask Simon's mother-in-law. She probably didn't think it was insignificant. But Jesus doesn't go, look, I haven't got time for this because, you know, I just cast out a demon out of an unclean man in a public arena. I haven't got time for this. And so Jesus is going to demonstrate his power, not by uh, going through a great prayer meeting or anything like that. He just walks over and he's going to grab her by the hand, lift her out of bed, and she's going to be instantly healed. And then the picture is going to be simply that she's going to start serving them. And it's an interesting scenario, and I want you to just kind of walk through it with me as we sort of see those pieces, to just kind of remind us of things that's easy for us to forget about in the journey of life, and how we perceive and anticipate and expect to experience the power of God. It's interesting that when the, they come into the house, apparently Jesus isn't aware of the fact that Simon's mother-in-law is sick. And apparently she's not living or laying right in front of the front door, because they had to tell Jesus about this problem. So it wasn't obvious when he walked in the room, there was probably other rooms, and being that they had to be really careful back then about diseases and sickness, she was probably a bit isolated because nobody else wanted to get it. I mean, if, our, if someone in our family is sick, we don't invite people over. We don't do hospitality because we don't want to get them sick, right? We, we don't do that even now. But somehow this doesn't become an issue and they walk into this particular room and the disciples, once Jesus is in the room, they go to Jesus and it says they told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law. The question is, why did they do that? Well, I, I know about you and I, if someone's sick, they're sick. You give them some medicine and you know this is going to take a time and it's going to do its thing and it's just going to take its course and we're going to live with it. But because the disciples had been with Jesus and they saw him do some things that they couldn't accomplish on their own, but they went and healed a man with an unclean spirit, they by their own experience go, wait a minute, wow, if Jesus did that, and that seems like a really big deal because demons were personalities that were actually trying to control people and resisted Jesus. If this is just an illness, maybe Jesus could help her. But I, I think what's important is that the disciples actually had the compassion to talk to Jesus about it. Now you might say, Brad, I waited all week for this. Like, this hardly makes sense to me. Like, why is this so profound? Well, I suspect that there are all kinds of hurting people that you meet through the week that you don't talk to Jesus about them.
They might be people at work. They might be people that you go to school with. They might be people in your neighborhood. might be people in your own. And sometimes we just kind of go, well, if they're in-laws and outlaws that we don't like, it's kind of like, well, you get what you deserve and hopefully you make it. But what I, th- I think is important here is that the disciples didn't say, oh, look, it wasn't like Simon saying, hey, listen, can we talk, let's t- talk to Jesus about my mother-in-law, and they act here like they did when, you know, the children wanted to come see Jesus. Look, don't bother them. Children aren't important enough. Like, this isn't, this isn't worthy of Jesus' time. And they could have easily come to the conclusion, look, she's sick, she's going to get over it. We're not told this is life and death. Don't bother the master with something so trivial as being sick. And you know what happens in our culture? And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I certainly have, is that the more hectic and the more frenetic and the busier we get, the less compassionate we become of the people around us. And so we just know that people are gonna have hard times and suffer and we sympathize with them, but we rarely try to connect them with Jesus because I'm just too busy. Or sometimes we just don't care because All the compassion in our own heart has been sucked out just trying to survive the week and deal with my own stuff. I got enough problems of my own without having to step into someone else's world. But somehow in this midst of all the important things that Jesus is doing, and he comes into this poem, they have enough compassion for her that they're saying, hey Jesus, do you you think maybe you could do something to help Simon's mother-in-law? And I'll tell you, one of the things that I think is really helpful for us to learn as believers, and and this is a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing, is to make sure we never lose sight of having compassion on people who are hurting. It's really easy for us to blow by people every single day who are hurting, and because of my schedule and my priorities that are so important, I really don't have time to bother with someone who, yeah, well, they're sick, but, and they'll probably get better, but. And we don't intercede for them like these men did for Simon's mother-in-law. Sometimes we're really too quick to say, well, this is God's will. Hopefully, they'll make it. They obviously asked Jesus to do something. They didn't demand Jesus to do something. They didn't come up with some formula to get God to interact. My my favorite pet peeve verse, they didn't get two or three of them together and try to convince God to do something because they agreed on it. That's a whole other story, don't even ask. They simply went to Jesus and said, listen, she's suffering. Could Could you think you could do something? That was it for them. Not because they thought they had the power, but they knew that Jesus was the kind of character and person and had the power that he could do something. And often we've long stopped playing, praying for people who aren't saved and for sicknesses that they have and other afflictions because we're not really convinced Jesus is gonna do anything. And we know that Jesus didn't heal everybody but often we're too quick to give up. And it's so easy for us to lose our compassion And then the uniqueness of Christ's power is kind of interesting here because uh, the first thing I want you to notice is he didn't create a formula for us to follow to, to get everybody healed. 
One of the things you'll see in the scriptures, when, especially when Jesus is dealing with demons and spirits and everything else, is that people have formulized everything. So if we just follow the same formula, we can cast people out and deal with them and fix everything. And so people do this, and often nothing happens, but there's times that God in his power and grace and mercy touches and heals people from extraordinary afflictions, and then we don't know whether we did it or he did it. Well, we prayed, did, did that meant we did it because we had the faith or that Jesus did it because that's what he was gonna do. So sometimes this can get really conflicted in our own hearts about what's our role in this thing? But Jesus doesn't create a formula here that the disciples are supposed to go out and replicate so that they can heal everybody. Jesus simply walks over and we're not told that he said anything, he just walked over and he grabbed her hand, lifted her up and she stood up out of bed and she was instantly, in that process, he healed her. She didn't just feel better because she took some Alka-Seltzer or whatever, that, that's, you know, and she kind of gutted through it. Jesus touched her life and she was remarkably changed and felt healthy and normal again. And so what it tells us is that when I look at this, that the power of Jesus is absolutely real. Sometimes we treat it like it's kind of a psychological thing. If I just think real positive thoughts and I believe hard enough, then life will be better. And sometimes that doesn't work. This isn't a self-help thing. This is where Jesus goes over and just takes her by the hand and heals her. And, and in all of this, I want to suggest to you as I read the text that one of the most profound things you and I can do is not claim the power or the authority ourselves. The issue is all we have to do is get people who are hurting connected with the Jesus who can touch their life. Because sometimes we get into my sense of self-worth and significance is I've got to be able to do this. People won't say that out loud. But they want to say, well, I, I need to be able to do this so that I know that God is working through me. You don't have any of that here. The best thing the disciples did is say, Jesus, that was it. They can't walk out of there claiming, look what we did. They can go out of there going, wow, look what Jesus did. And so as we begin to think through this text, I, I want you to notice that not only is the power that he simply healed her, and she is in the only one in this context that experienced God's power in this particular way, but I want you to notice the picture of what she does. What does she do? She gets up and she says, all right, Jesus, because you healed me, I'm now going to be evangelist. I'm going to change jobs. I'm not going to be a housewife. I'm going to go on an evangelistic tour and I'm going to reach as many people as I possibly can. Nope. She gets up and probably does what she normally did and she, all it says is she served them. Well, that, that doesn't sound very dramatic. Like, what's the deal with that? I mean, can't you, can, can it be more fruitful than that? Couldn't she just go and do it? Like, now that she's been healed, she has the power to go and heal other people? Like, what, what, would, what would be an adequate result of being touched by the power of God in such a powerful way? At least she's got to go and tell somebody, and we'll get to that in a minute, but she simply gets up and she says, hey, out of, out of a, probably out of a sense of gratitude of Jesus healing, she's going to go right back and she's going to serve them, probably provide a meal. Now we'd blow over that going like, 
Well, that's not a very great story. But one of the things I want you to think about is that we kind of have this addiction to dramatic stories. If you look at Simon's mother-in-law compared to the guy in the synagogue who was delivered from unclean spirit, you put them together and go, man, this dude's got a way better story than she does. She just, you know, she'd probably recover anyway. And there's always a tendency for us to compare stories and go, wow, that's a really great story of God's power. Healing of a her of a fever, well, yeah, it's cool, but it's not near as much fun as this one. And sometimes we put ourselves as second-rate Christians because we don't have the same kind of story as someone else does. And Simon's mother-in-law simply goes, I am absolutely grateful that even though it's circumstantial and had something to do with my physical health, I was touched by the power of Jesus and he made me whole again. And her act of gratitude was to serve them. And the disciples got to witness the power of God in a couple of different ways. They saw him cast out a demon and an unclean spirit, but then they got, saw him heal Simon's mother-in-law. Both are very different, and yet still people touched by the power of Jesus. And then we're told something interesting in terms of the text. It tells us that as the sunset goes down, they go out and start recruiting people from all over the city. Now, it's interesting to me to look at this particular scenario because it says in 32, when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who had, were demon-possessed. And I want to pause there for just a second because the fact that it says it was after sunset, remember in the synagogue it was the Sabbath. We were told specifically that it was the Sabbath. The fact that it's after sunset means that Sabbath has officially concluded and if they, all these people come running, they're not going to get hammered by the Pharisees and scribes for breaking the Sabbath because they're out doing stuff when they shouldn't be. So in a sense, it's almost a consideration of Jesus that after the sunset, all of a sudden, they, as it says here, they began bringing to him all those who are sick. Now the question is, who is they? If you look at the text, they put in this pronoun and you have to kind of think of for a second about who, wait a minute, who's he talking about? Well, the immediate context would seem to be, if you looked at the first verses, that it would have to be Simon and Andrew and James and John. Because they're the only subjects other than Simon's mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you, but I would suspect that once you get to sunset, you're shutting things down, not ramping things up. And so when this happens, it says they, and I'm, I'll, I'll take a guess here, I think it has to mean it was the four disciples, and I also suspect it might be Simon's mother-in-law, who then start going out and recruiting all these people who are broken and needy and suffering, and they bring them back to Jesus because they know something about Jesus that those people don't know, and that is he has the power to change their life. It's very possible because his fame spread from the synagogue for people who witnessed him healing the, unclean, the man with the unclean spirit. It also says they spread the word out, so they could also mean all the spectators that were at the synagogue. 
But the immediate context would seem like this handful of people in the home, all of a sudden, either because of Jesus told them to or because of their own desire, start going out and recruiting all these broken and wounded people to come back to Jesus. And I will propose to you that one of the defining distinctives about these people compared to a lot of people who might be followers of Christ at this time is that what is it that motivates them to go and, get, and reach out to other people who are broken and hurt? They've all witnessed and personally experienced the power of God to change their own life. And I will propose to you that you show me a person who isn't interested in reaching out to other broken people, and they may struggle with the, the reality that, you know, I've conformed to this religion, I've done all these things, I kept the rules, I've been part of the group, but I'm not sure I've really experienced the power of God myself, so there's no real inclination to go out and tell other people about it because they haven't been touched by the power of God themselves. Now, sometimes that's a bit of a misnomer because if a person comes to faith in Christ, they've been touched by the power of God to go from death to life. The Spirit of God has done a work in it whether they're clearly perceptive of the implications of that or not. But I want to propose to you that the people who have the compassion that are going to try to connect people to Jesus who don't know him or who are suffering or afflicted or need the hope of the gospel are only the people that have been touched by the power of Jesus themselves and they know it. And it puts me in a really difficult spot. Just like it might put you in a difficult spot because I can say all the amens to the gospel and the mission and and yet, if I never make the effort to go out like these people did, to, to get people connected to Jesus, then I have to wonder in myself, have I really been touched by the power of God in a way that motivates me to have that kind of compassion? Because maybe it's possible I'm so busy with my own life and my own schedule and the own things that I want to do that there's no room for compassion and there's no time to take any scenic routes into people's lives who are hurting because that's gonna suck all the energy out of me. Hey, it's sunset, I'm tired, I'm going to bed. And yet they're out after sunset, stepping into people's lives and saying, look, we've just had the most amazing experience of the power of God and this can't wait. Because we have family and friends and people who are afflicted and suffering and struggling with life and they need to get connected to Jesus. I can't solve all their problems, but I do know the one who can. And so they, this, this anonymous sense of they are, I believe, very much the people who've experienced and witnessed and truly had a taste of the power of God touching their lives in a very real way, and those are the ones who are going out, whether Jesus requested it or not. And what's unique about Jesus is not just his presence and his power, but his purpose, because as much as we are enamored by the idea that Jesus healed people and he cast out demons, and I think realities we have to come to even today about what Jesus can do and not do, 
if we really believe that Jesus can change people's lives, then it seems to me that the best expression of God's power in my life is to have the compassion to reach into other people's lives and say, listen, here's somebody you've got to meet. And our apathy and our indifference to that reality and wanting to do that and to step into other people's lives probably says more about me than it does about the mission of the gospel. God, in his mercy and grace, often fixes our circumstances. He heals, he changes, he alters, he intervenes, he inserts his presence, he protects, he runs interference, he subtly influences, he guides and shifts situations, he leads, he adjusts, he impacts, he inspires new direction in our lives. Events that often at times go unnoticed by us and sometimes unappreciated. But sometimes it's far more noticeable as with Simon's mother-in-law where he heals and cures and changes and casts out and rescues individuals from their afflictions. So the question I want to ask yourself this morning is, can you give genuine witness to the power of Christ in your life? Because the real danger is that, yeah, I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, But you and I both know that's a short rope at some point because every person who claims the name of Christ doesn't want to just waddle through life. We want to experience the power of God to give us wings to live in the freedom of Christ. But you can't do it if you haven't really feel that you've been touched by the power of Jesus. Ken Mansfield, who was a manager for Apple Records way back when the Beatles were right on the front page, talks about his wonderful life, about being the manager of, of this whole record set and everything that was doing. He, uh, after the Beatles, things went downhill for him and finally everything kind of went to pieces and he met a woman who actually helped him come to Christ. He, once he came to Christ, he made this admission. He said, you know, Billboard magazine was my Bible, record charts, my God, Prestigious positions uh, was my purpose. The Holy Grail was a Grammy, and the best tables at the Brown Derby was the Promised Land. He says after uh, his conversion, he realized how hollow this was and how empty it was, and he made this statement. They, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the authors of the map I needed for my journey. I needed a chart, a journal with clear direction, a log to refer to, a guidebook where their commands could speak to my wandering spirit. I needed a book so powerful that its very words could burn a living message in the absolute heart of my hearts. I needed the irrefutable holy word of God, the Father Almighty, the creator of the very seas I was lost on. And it's an amazing thing at times when God reaches into our circumstances in life and he puts things together where I get the job that I've never been able to dream about getting. Or that he steps into our life and he heals me of certain things that are going on in my life that may push me to the edge of thinking I'm going to lose it. Those sometimes are really confusing to us because we don't actually control God to make him do it in the way that we want him to do it. 
But I want to encourage you to think about the fact that in spite of the fact that God can touch our external circumstances and I think is very involved in our life to put his fingerprints on our life even when we don't notice it, I want to encourage you to think about the greatest need for our lives is to experience the power of Christ to write living truth upon our hearts so that it transforms us into the image of his Son. And if it simply means that I'm now willing, instead of being isolated and and independent and not caring and having any compassion, that I'm like Simon's mother-in-law, I just want to get up and serve others. Or whether I'm like the disciples who simply have responded to the call of Jesus and they've watched him do some incredible miracles, but may not have, the only thing they realize is that he's the Messiah and they want to follow him that they get to introduce other people to the presence and the power of Jesus and watch him do miracles in their life. Or whether I'm a person like the man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit and he so radically changes the afflictions and the torment of my own soul that I'm going 180 degrees in a different direction to the glory of God. Your expectation of what you think God should do for you with his power may be very different than what he's trying to do in your life. And the question is, can you appreciate that your story doesn't have to compete with the man with the unclean spirit? That God's grace in your life demonstrates his grace and mercy and power and does so in such a unique way that when we stand in the presence of God, he's going to put your life on display and I want you to, and he's going to say, I I did these kinds of things in Brad's life that are so unique that nobody else shares the kind of things that I did in his life because I was redeeming him from his stuff. And then I can celebrate with Jared, who's gone through collateral damage and things that are so brutal and so difficult that I stand back and go, I don't even know why you're still alive, much less standing here getting testimony to the power of God changing you so radically. Can you be content with what God is doing in you and not feel like a failure because it doesn't compare with someone else? Have you been touched by the power of God where the most unquenchable, compelling drive of life is I've got to introduce people to this Jesus who can change them? Because sometimes... It's great to experience the power of God. It's a tragedy that we keep it to ourselves. Because I don't think I have to tell you. Our world is crumbling around us. There are people who are broken and they're desperate. And God has given us the privilege to be touched by the power of his presence in our own life And whether it's simply introducing people to Jesus or serving people in a ministry or proclaiming the glory of God because of such radical change in my life, we have the privilege to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus to change people because he's changed us. Has he done that in your life? If Brad comes up after and does his proverbial, what's God doing in your life? Do you know how to answer it? Father, thank you for what Jesus does so uniquely that even his disciples weren't doing. 
they had the great privilege to run out and gather people and bring them to introduce them to Jesus. Take someone like Simon's mother-in-law who was touched by the power of Jesus and her claim to fame wasn't a new radical change in direction in life, it was simply serving them. Father, forgive us at times because if we get these expectations of what we think the power of God needs to look like in our life or in our circumstances, because it's amazing when you change the circumstances of our life. It's a little scarier when you want to change the heart that's in our life. May the fruit of all of that be this compassionate commitment to, el- to tell others, not about what we can do for them, but what Jesus can do for them. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.